Books Do viewers. The person I have in the studio with me today might look a little bit familiar to you, not only because she's been a guest before, but because as of today, her book is number one in the Kindle store. This has never happened to her before, never happened to me before. So we're both excited and I'd like to introduce you to my guest, Jane Healy, who is the author of a new novel called The Beantown Girls. Jane last joined me almost two years ago for her first novel, which, um, which also took place in Boston, called The Saturday Evening Girls Club. Both of them are kind of centered around groups of women, but have very, very different feels to them. So welcome, Jane. Hi, thanks for having me back. I'm so glad to have you here again, especially since you've risen so high <laughs> in the firmament. I think the last time you were here, too, we, you weren't exactly sure of uh, whether you're going to, to be able to make your living writing, and now it's kind of a done deal. Yeah, definitely a done deal. That's Congratulations. right. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so after your last novel, I think historical fiction so far is... is is what's up your alley and what you enjoy. That's right. So what brought you from Saturday Evening Girls Club, which uh, was more dealt with the settlement houses in, in Boston, and then you kind of expanded to the, to the universe of World War II. How did that come about? Uh, well, I've always had an interest in World War II history. My grandfather was a World War II vet. Um, he was a Navy firefighter. And I was looking for my next story, and I wanted to write a bigger story. I was leaning towards doing a World War II story, and I actually saw a picture on Pinterest of four women standing in the field in uniforms I didn't recognize, and it was somewhere in England, 1943-44, and it said the Red, you know, Red Cross Club Mobile Girls, and I was really intrigued. You know, at, like anything with research, you know, you see. A, if something sparks your interest, that's kind of the thread that you start to follow. And, and that's what led me to this story, ultimately. And um, so can you tell us a little bit about the Red, the Red Cross Clubmobile girls and what differentiates them from uh, women who worked at the USO? Um, completely separate program. So in around 1942, um, the military and the Red Cross worked really hand in hand during the war in a way that I didn't realize. And um, the military came to Harvey Gibson, who was the Red Cross commissioner at the time, and said, Our, you know, it's great you have all these clubs in the major cities in the, the major theater of operations, but um, we need more. We need more at the front lines. We, you know, morale is our biggest problem now, and what can you do to help us? And so they came up, Harry, Harvey Gibson and others conceived of this idea of clubs on wheels, where the three women would be staffed by three Red Cross women, and they were they would go to the front lines of the war or, or pretty close to it, serving coffee and donuts and playing music and hang, handing out cigarettes and candy. And they had more access to the war front, um, the front lines, than war correspondents and really most soldiers. So, um, you know, it was a dangerous job it, on the surface, you know, handing out coffee and donuts doesn't sound that, you know, that hard, but it was, um, you know, it was pretty extraordinary what these women went through to, just to um, be there for the troops. So is the U.S., was the USO different in that it was that part of the service as opposed to the Red Cross? Yes, yeah, this, this program was all, all Red Cross run, the Red Cross hires, yeah, it's a completely different program. So, um, so there had already been Red Cross donut dollies, as they're called, um, at one point in your book. In Europe, they just weren't near 
the front of where the troops were. So they were in major cities. Well, and you, so there was um, clubs in major cities, Red Cross clubs, and then the Club Mobile program started in the UK to see if you know see if they can make make a go of it in around around 1942. And then you know they realized you know after um, Norman after D-Day. They started sending the them over with the troops shortly after D-Day, like a month later. They started sending the clubmobiles there. Because I, um, I wondered about why your book starts in 1944, yes. which was kind of you know late in the war. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about how the uh, girls, and I'm I'm going to use girls generically because they were called girls at the time, even though really they were women. They were women. But, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, girls in this context almost almost sounds better. I mean, Beantown girls sounds better than the Beantown <laughs> women. Right. But how were they recruited? Because it, it's not it wasn't just for um, their driving ability, which they had to have. Right. Right. Um, it was a really sophisticated recruitment program. Uh, they. Had read the Red Cross sent teams around the U.S. and they they only chose one out of every six women um, who applied. It was a really prestigious assignment to get assigned to be a clubmobile girl. They had to be over 25 and college educated. They had to have some work. They preferred that they had some work experience. Um, and then of course it was the 40s, so you know intangibles like they had to be good looking they had to have the all-american girl look you know they had to be hardy physically because they were uh, actually like had to lift like huge tins of lard and flour and um so they definitely had to be in shape um you know and so so it was it was really interesting to me that it wasn't just like anyone who signed up could become one you re they really had to go through this whole process and physical exams and um, interview. There was tons of interviews to see if they had the personality for it to, to really be able to like interact with the troops well. Um, it, you know, it was it was a long process, and then the training beyond that was was a pretty long process as well. It's quite a combination of skills that you needed because you know you had to be able to look good in the middle of the field where there wasn't places to do your hair, take showers, do right. your nails. But you also had to, like you say, lift the heavy trays, but you had to drive these massive trucks. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, there were probably women who, you know, who women obviously were driving, but I don't think there were probably any women in the United States who had driven big trucks like that. No, no, it was, um, they had to drive two and a half ton GMC trucks. They had to learn how to drive those. And it was terrifying for a lot of them learning how to do it but once they did it was such a point of pride they like loved driving the trucks and and talked about it you know well after they were they were clubmobiles you know later in life so how many women were there a bit approximately in in and were they only in the european theater or um or, or were they elsewhere as well? They were elsewhere. I know um, in the European theater at the height of the war, there was over a thousand um, clubmobile women and um, about 200, 289 clubmobiles. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to um, the heart of your novel, which is three particular clubmobile girls. Why don't you tell us about your three main characters? Yes, yeah, so um, I, I really these three women are based on a lot of the research that I did and the diaries and letters of the original Clubmobile women, Clubmobile girls. Um, Fiona is the main protagonist and she loses her fiance or he goes missing in Germany. Um, he's in the war and she's home in Boston working in the mayor's office 
and is adrift and grieving and doesn't know what she's going to do now that her fiance is missing. She's kind of lost and sees this newsreel. She goes to the movie, see, sees a newsreel about this clubmobile program and convinces her two best friends to apply to become clubmobile girls. And um, her friend Viv is working at an advertising agency, very artistic, but kind of dead-end job because it's the 40s and all she could get was a secretarial job. She she joins up right away and then they have to convince their their other friend Dottie, who's shy, kind of introverted, but very musically talented. And that was another thing um, that kind of put you over the top in terms of applying to be a clubmobile girl if you had any sort of artistic or musical talents. That that definitely helped your cause. So they've convinced her to to join up with them as well. So it sounds like the, the making of, the, you spent quite a bit of time um, on their daily routine. And to me, worse than driving the truck was making the donuts, which were made in these horribly crude ovens. Horrible. <laughs> like sacks and sacks of flour, yeah. Lord, which is bleh, disgusting anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it didn't, nobody was like a baker or anything no, like that. No. It was just all what they had to learn. Right. And they were in these, you know, they were in essentially food, you know, the equivalent of modern day food trucks. So they, were, they had these donut machines in these tiny kitchens. And the Donut Association of America or something had donated it, <laughs> these machines for the war effort, but they were horrible. And, you know, not only in regular bakeries they were hard to use, but in the middle of a field in a tiny truck, it was often a disaster. It, to, to the point that it, at, towards the end of the war, they actually started outsourcing the making of the donuts because ah. it just got to be such, it was such a mess, like donut machines would blow up and, you know, it, 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 or things would freeze, parts would freeze, and then, then it wouldn't work. And yeah, it was not, that was the part of the job that most of the women loathed, actually. They did not enjoy making the donuts. That must have been such a great relief when they didn't have to do that anymore. Yes. And yet they had to, like, deal with that, but also when... You know, when the donuts were done and they opened the window, they had to be beautiful and charming. Yes, and put the lipstick on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, how did you, um, your source material, so you mentioned diaries. How did, did you actually ever speak with any in person or, or over the phone or anything like I, that? I did not because most of them um, would be in their late, um, mid to late 90s. Oh. Uh, uh, because they had to be over 25. Right, you know, right, so, right. Um, I actually just heard from, um, there are definitely people who are very interested in Clubmobile history and are fans of the Clubmobile Girls. So someone just sent me an article in a Midwestern paper, um, a Clubmobile Girl out there just celebrated her 100th birthday, oh, so, which is really cool. So I'm trying to get in touch with her through the paper, but you know. Oh, that would we'll be see. so great. Which Imagine so if, great. like, you could go do a reading we'll out it. by where she lives, and there yeah. was a real clubmobile girl there. Yeah, wow, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. So, um, since there's hardly any left, um, you, you said you were you used diaries, though. How did that come about? Yes. Yeah, so, um, once again, you know, I feel like we're so lucky to live in Boston. The Schlesinger Library at Harvard has um, an amazing American history, women's history in America. And I reached out to them and they had 13 boxes of just Clubmobile, Red Cross Clubmobile Girl memorabilia, letters, diaries. They had a uniform, they had um, like ration receipts and you know, and ration books and all, and training manuals. They, it was a, It was like a treasure trove. Did you start writing before you found that? I had, yeah, I had, 
because there's about a half dozen books out there that were have were either written by a clubmobile girl or were written by a member of the family or you know there's a, so I had some books but I knew I needed more and so I when I found that that was just like hitting that the jackpot. That must have been like yeah the amazing amazing yeah so so thrilled. So Schlesinger I have been there I can't remember what for or. Um, was there when a friend of mine donated archival material, but it's really an amazing source for anything about women, isn't it? It really is, yeah, it's just her, and the staff is terrific, and I recruited a friend to help me like sort through these boxes, and then also my daughter came one day, and we're just like scanning material and whatever we think might be worthwhile to keep, and um, it was tr it was great. I mean, I love research. I would probably still be doing research if I wasn't on <laughs> deadline. I, I just really enjoyed like reading these letters, and it got to the point where um, the, the women in Europe, the clubmobile women in Europe, were there, were the most prolific writers, and so that's how I, the story ended up being in in the European theory of operations. And it got to the point where I would read letters, and I would be reading like the same event from two different or three different women's perspectives. Oh. You know, like one time there was an explosion in a field and there was a child injured. And, and then reading about that, how they all reacted and responded to it was fascinating. Yeah, they, um, there's, I don't want to um, put any spoilers out there at all because there's, there's just so much in here to marvel at. But um, I am going to mention uh, one incident, one really like almost turning point incident where that you built on a real life incident where American troops were, uh, because the, the, the line was shifting as to where the front lines were, American troops actually spent an evening with German soldiers. Yes. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? Um, that was, you know, I knew that the the timeline of my story would take place because part of it takes place during the Battle of the Bulge, and that happened over Christmas. And I was wondering if there was any interesting stories about Christmas during the Battle of the Bulge, and came upon um, this unsolved mysteries episode where this. Okay, uh, wait, stop. <laughs> I so know, yes, <laughs> yes, I know it's crazy. <laughs> so you, were you watching Unsolved Mysteries no, and it no. just came on, or I, you you found out? I was about just it. googling around and I was like, <laughs> wait, what? And so it was a, the story of this German, um, this German little boy had answered the door one night. He was in the middle of the forest with his mom, waiting for his dad to come for Christmas Eve. And it was he, they were within the lines of the Battle of the Bulge. This little cottage and so that knocks on there's a knock on the door it's three u.s soldiers and the mother was like oh just come in and have christmas dinner it's freezing <laughs> the, the weather was like the worst it was like the worst winter in 100 years in europe during the battle i think of the you Bulge. said during that one of the soldiers said well it's minus 13 out today and yeah like, whoa uh, it was terrible so they came in and then shortly after that there was another knock on the door and it was german soldiers and so the mother and the son were like terrified that they were going to be shot for harboring U.S. soldiers. And um, but then the mother kind of stood up to the German soldiers and said, "It's Christmas Eve, and you're you're going to come sit and have Christmas dinner, and then we're all going to go our separate ways tomorrow." And I loved the story so much that I had to weave it into the narrative somehow. Oh, and I think that that was just perfect. It was um, getting towards the end of the book. And it was just, um, it was like, you know, that old story about World War I um, when they had the same thing at Christmas yes. in the trenches and they stopped fighting and just, and sang you know, silent sang night. songs. Yeah, right. yeah, so. exactly. So, 
Uh, that was that was a great part. Thank um, you. Another part I really enjoyed was um, you actually put a cat and a dog inside a club mobile. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, w I wanted to incorporate pets into the story because one of the things I realized in reading research is that a lot of the soldiers and Red Cross women would adopt these abandoned pets that were left behind during the war. And it was another way of, the, of coping with the war, you know, ha taking care of an animal, being, becoming attached to an animal. So um, they, there is a cat named Vera Lynn, <laughs> after the singer, and then um, and she she comes on board because she's um, in when they're in the UK, they have a driver named Jimmy, and that it's it's Jimmy's cat, and then they take in another do a dog of one of the soldiers who has to go off to war um, named Barbara after a, a girl from home. So, <laughs> and it's been really interesting because people who are, are dog people have been, I guess it, it's, you know, virulent we know is okay. Barbara, I, it's kind of not, it, it's not explicit. It's implied that she's okay. And, and I've been getting letters from dog lovers like, what happens? Is Barbara okay? <laughs> I'm like, Barbara is okay. Oh, we don't care about the soldiers. We just want to know <laughs> about do, the dogs. Does Barbara, okay. does Barbara make it through the war? Yeah. Well, see, Sue, it's not only World War II buffs that are going to enjoy the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's dog and cat yes, lovers, the too. dog lovers wanted to know. <laughs> well, the part, I'm going to ask you to do a, a short reading for us and maybe set it up, but um, I think this part doesn't have any dogs or cats in it. Right. So is that how? Here we go. Okay. So maybe you can give us a little background. Yes, so um, this is another scene that um, is based on a true story that I read about, that one of the women had written about, and um, they are, they had just landed short, not too long after D-Day on, on the beaches, and um, so one of the soldiers who had been there at D-Day just offers to take them around on a tour. And so this is, Viv, Fiona, and Dottie are going on a tour with this young soldier who takes them takes them around the beaches in the beach area and this is um, this is straight from my research and I thought it was really um, a, a moving and this part. is like right after D-Day right yeah, happened, right? yeah right like maybe I'm, we're talking a month later yeah we found the road to transit area B which was just a nearby field with a few army tents we'd be camping with the rest of the caravan before heading to the new Red Cross Club in Cherbourg the next day well, I'll be damned. Real live American girls. A private with a thick southern accent came out of one of the tents to greet us. He spread his arms wide. He was very thin with dirty blonde hair and at least a few days worth of stubble on his face. Welcome to the continent. Thanks, soldier. How, thanks, soldier. How long have you been here? I asked. In France? D plus 114, he said with pride. On the ship, I had learned that D was for D-Day. I'm an engineer. Was in Africa, Sicily, and Italy. Come on, I've got a Jeep. I'll give you a quick tour before the rest of your group gets here. We rode along the beach and then inland, covering our mouths to keep from inhaling the dust, as Dick, our GI host from Tennessee, started talking about his experience on D-Day. It was miserable and cold, and we had to climb out of the boats, neck deep in water, he said. There were bodies floating all around me, and then when we got to shore, there were mines everywhere. The Air Corps had totally missed them. My buddy Butch was hit by a sniper and killed right in front of me. His head was just gone. Dick kept talking as we drove, in a trance, giving us the play-by-play -play of all that had happened to him, like a confessional. We couldn't have stopped him if we had tried. And from the way he was going on, I knew that he would be haunted by the images of that day until he was an old man. We pulled up to the first American cemetery, lines and lines of plain white wooden crosses, 
Soldiers were walking along the road slowly, stopping to examine the dog tags draped over the crosses, reading the names, looking for their friends. I bit my lip and said some silent prayers as we got out of the Jeep and started walking through. I'll show you Butchie's cross. It's a couple of rows over, Dick said, tromping through the cemetery, leading the way. Will you look at that? Dick stopped and pointed. The French people who live near here? They put a rose on every single grave. Every single one. Can you believe it? There was something about this kind gesture that broke an emotional dam in Dick, and he kneeled down in front of one of the crosses and began to weep and my heart ached at his raw grief. I kneeled down next to him and put my arm over his shoulder, which made him sob even more. I looked up at Viv and Dottie, and we were all trying our best not to cry. We didn't want to make it worse for him or any of the other soldiers searching for their friends among the crosses. We walked Dick back to the Jeep, where, once he composed himself, he started apologizing profusely. I'm so sorry. I'm s I don't know what came over me, he said, taking a deep breath and starting the car. He rubbed his hands over his face, just the rose on every grave, and then being with you three makes me think of home. Thank you. That Thank was, you. Uh, that was quite the passage. I think um, one thing I really enjoyed about the book is that when the soldiers would see the, the, the girls, it definitely, it had such, so I mean, I know they started the club mobiles because of morale, but I, I think they could not have anticipated the emotions that it would that it would bring forth from the soldiers, you know, who missed their girls at home, missed their moms, missed their sisters, and hadn't seen a woman probably in, you know, months. And right. here are, you know, these girls who are risking their own lives to come out and be with them and take care of them. Um, it, it, the book uh, really had quite an emotional wallop at different, certainly at different points. I, I think um, you also did a beautiful job with handling the response that GIs had when they heard the Boston accents. I thought that was a lot of fun. I mean, you, all, you uh, did a good job in making mention of the various um, places across the United States that the GIs came from and how they always asked, like, who won the World Series and you know yeah, they were yeah. out of touch. I, I I just thought that was that was all really re very well handled. Oh, thank you very much. I, I that was a, a lot of that was from um, again from letters and diaries. I, one thing that I noticed that came up over and over is they they meet these new soldiers and these soldiers were always looking for some sort of connection. Like oh well, I'm from Burlington, Vermont, and you know if I have a cousin here or you know I know someone there. Do you know you know just to have that connection they, they longed for some sort of connection to these women and to connection to home and I thought it was important to, to weave that into the story somehow and it also made it um, more universal so it's not just a Boston right book, even right. though it's called the Beantown Girls so um, what's what's next for what's, you um, now that you're a full-time <laughs> famous Kindle oh, number one number one in the Kindle store writer what's next um, you know I'm working on a new proposal and um, I'm superstitious because it's like still kind of in the air no but details it's, no it's details. Um, you know another story of, of lesser known women in history during specifically during wartime actually which wasn't my plan but I, I kind of stumbled upon this story that I think think might work I so hope. you I mean I think you you do us all a service 
by revealing in, in two, two out of two novels, you've revealed um, occupations that, that we really never gave a thought to women doing and, you know, women doing things on their own. And I wonder, the book made me wonder, you know, Rosie the Riveter? Oh, yeah. And how, you know, a lot of the women who worked in the factories, munitions factories, didn't want to go back home. They just, yes. they liked working. They liked so working. So I wonder what it was like. Did you encounter anything about the afterlives of, of the women who were in the club mobiles? I mean, it must have been just hard to go back home and, and lead a normal life after what they'd seen. It really was, and I think for some of them it was harder than others, and some of them did end up staying staying back, staying in Europe and doing work with the Red Cross because it was like they had found their calling, you know, and they, they couldn't imagine going back to their old lives. Um, some just got married and, and went, went home and, you know, raised a family and, and went on with their life. But uh, it, it was clear from, you know, reading about these women over the course of their lives that this this experience had an incredible impact. It changed their lives forever. And it, it was some of, I mean, some of the memories were hard, but it was also some of the best memories of their lives, for sure. Do you think they, did they, did you find anything out about like them getting together and having reunions? Definitely, yes. They definitely had reunions. Um, one of the books that I used, um, Ark in the Storm, American Red Cross in the Storm, had, um, you know, pictures of them at different reunions and they had all sort of compiled um, old newsletters and and notes to each other and di and different things. So they definitely there was definitely a bond that that lasted. They kept in touch for sure. Well, um, I think what you've done, Jane, is to create a bond with us and with these women and also um, with the soldiers. You're very um, you you portray war without being bloody and gory and political. It's just you know, human to human, and I think that's the best part of the book. Um, so I want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And uh, viewers, you're going to be very lucky if when you get your copy of The Beantown Girls. I join the other people who are number one in the Kindle store in grabbing their copies. And uh, thanks for joining us, and thank you, Jane, for being here today. Have a good night. Thank you.